All right. Now, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This morning, we're going to look at verses 31 through 42. John chapter 4, 31 through 42. One of the things that we're asking God for, um, for our immediate neighborhood, our community, mid-Michigan, our nation, the globe, is revival. Uh, Here is a mini revival of sorts where there are many from a small village, a small unlikely place that come to place their faith in Christ um, almost at the same time. And so there are aspects of revival that happen in this small Samaritan town. And we see it here at the end of John chapter 4. Before we read our passage, let's ask for the Lord's help in prayer. Would you uh, join me in prayer again this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. We do pray and ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That by your Spirit working in us and by us walking in your Spirit, we may walk in a manner worthy of your Son, Jesus our Lord, that we may be pleasing to him and we would bear fruit in every good work and we would increase in the knowledge of you, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is our desire and it is our request that Christ would be glorified and we would grow in your grace. And so we ask that through the reading and preaching of your word this morning, uh, by your spirit working in us, that would happen. And we bring our request in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Well, how do you talk about roadkill? How do you talk about the dead deer on the side of the road that you just drove past and your daughter saw? My daughter, a couple weeks back, saw prime ripe roadkill and 
Immediately, her little heart, filled with compassion and pity, was concerned about the safety of deer. And she said, Dad, shouldn't there be laws to protect deer? And I said, well, baby, there are laws to protect deer. Um, and the problem is that the deer don't know the laws about traffic, and they didn't understand not to cross that line. And she didn't think that was funny. Um, but she said, but seriously, Dad, shouldn't we be careful of protecting little baby deer and especially fawns? And I said, baby, there are, there are laws, but you need to understand that while it's important to take care of God's creatures and to be stewards of God's creation, uh, people are more important than deer. There's some people today, I explained to her that they would see you, the deer, and the earthworm as being equal, being the same value and worth. And that's not the case. That you were made in the image of God and you have an eternal soul uh, which is different than the animal kingdom and different than the plant kingdom. And so therefore, we are not to be cruel to God's creatures and we are to seek the good of all God's creation. But while protecting deer are, is a good cause, it's subservient to protecting human life and flourishing. Um, that's important. I need you to understand that. Well, who knows if that sort of conversation really sticks on a drive home. But later that day, my wife was in the yard with my daughter and they noticed that the deer have been coming through our neighborhood eating the hostas in our garden. And this upset my daughter at this point. And she said, Mom, look what they're doing. And she said, well, you know, sure, it doesn't look great, but the deer need to have a salad or two. And my daughter said, no, Mom. People are more important than deer. So whatever cause that was coming together, she had her priorities straight and she lined them up. We do see much angst in the world around us today because people are desperately looking for a cause to believe in. And it's not just that they're looking for a good cause. There's something in the soul of men, women, boys, and girls that longs to discover what is the ultimate cause. What is something worth giving your life for? The trouble is that if God is removed from the story, you're not going to find the true plot. Without God as your chief end, you just go from one social issue to the next, one political issue to another, and you even might seek significance in serving others. But without God as your chief end, that too will leave you wanting. And so many will turn to seeking significance and satisfaction in their achievements, their wealth, romance, pleasure, leisure. From cause to cause, to pursuit to pursuit, John Newton, speaking of politics, said this, and I quote, In the hour when death shall open the door into eternity, many things which now assume an air of importance will be found light and unsubstantial as the basic, baseless fabric of a vision. Let me read it again. In the hour when death shall open the door into eternity, Many things which now assume an air of importance will be found light and unsubstantial as the baseless fabric of a vision. 
Many things that we make a vision and mission for our life in light of eternity will not hold up. That's his point. People long for a mission because this is how God made us. God made our first parents and gave them a charge. In Genesis 3, 28, he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's the creation mandate. It's the charge. And I would dare say that people searching for a cause today is because it's a haunting sense that I'm here for something. And I'm to have a purpose, a mission, something to give my life for. One of the great things that John does in his gospel is that he highlights the mission of Jesus. And it's a reoccurring theme throughout his narrative. And here in this passage, Jesus clearly identifies himself as a man on a mission, a man with a specific task. But in doing so, he takes an opportunity to teach his disciples. He wants to lay the groundwork for the disciples to understand Jesus' mission but not only that, here he wants his disciples to understand their role in his mission. So, in verses 31 through 34, I want us to think about a satisfying mission. A satisfying mission. Then in verses 35 through 38, a shared and urgent mission. A shared and urgent mission. And then verses 39 through 42, a worldwide mission. A worldwide mission. Looking back, verses 31 through 34, Jesus finds satisfaction in his mission. The disciples had left them there at a well. It's called Jacob's Well. It's near Sychar in Samaria. Normally, Jews don't travel through Samaria. They try to avoid the area. Jesus said he had to go there. And around the middle of the day, he's thirsty. And so he stops at a well. His Disciples go into a nearby town and they return with food. Jesus has been sitting at the well and he's been ministering to a Samaritan woman. He has offered her eternal life and she has believed in him and received it from him. But the disciples don't know the ins and outs of that conversation and what's happened. And they see Jesus talking to this woman and they have questions, but they dare not actually voice these questions. And so they say, Jesus, here's the food we brought. And Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples about his mission. But in doing so, he begins with saying, but let me, let me teach you something about the missionary. Let me teach you something about the leader of the mission. He wants to teach them something about God. And he does so by taking something that was very common and familiar. Something that the everyday man could relate to, but then... He points it and uses it to teach transcendent truth and a greater truth. And he's done this throughout John's gospel. John has shown us Jesus doing this. In John chapter 2, Jesus goes into the temple. And when he sees the money changers, he clears the temple. And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for my father. And as the conversation ensues, in John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews looking at the temple, they say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What did he do there? He, he took something that everyone could recognize. And then he taught them something about his resurrection. And his disciples later, after the resurrection, the 
it dawned on them. They understood what he was saying. Then he takes something familiar and he teaches a, a, a greater transcendent truth in John chapter 3. When a religious leader, Nicodemus, comes to him and he says, how do I, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? Is his basic question. How do I enter the kingdom of God? And how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus knew how, to some extent, how pregnancy worked, how a child came from a mother's womb and was born, but he also knew that children don't go back into the womb. And so there's something familiar, but it's puzzling to him. And Jesus is taking the opportunity to teach him something very important, saying that, Nicodemus, even you need to be born again. You need to be regenerated. He, he's teaching him about the new birth. Then in John chapter 4, the beginning of our chapter, the part which we did not read this morning, the beginning of the, the encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well, they're, they're going back and forth about Jesus getting a drink from her. And how does Jesus respond? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus is thirsty at a well, and then he offers living water. He, he piques her interest. He draws her in. And we learn that the living water he's offering is eternal life. It's eternal life that would come through the work of the Spirit that would be part of entering into the fellowship with God and being cleansed of the sin this is what he offers the woman at the well. She's thirsty, he's thirsty, but he takes the opportunity to teach something greater. So, so far in John's gospel, he's, he's talked about his resurrection. He's talked about regeneration. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit and eternal life. And he's using this same method that he used here in verse 32. So what he has to say here in verse 32 is a truth that is on par with these other things he wants his disciples to learn and know. And it's in relation to his mission and how he understands his mission. And he uses the simple analogy of that when you're hungry, you eat food and you're satisfied. You're starving and you have a meal, the way that it brings sustenance and it brings comfort and it brings strength. For me, I have a food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He wants his disciples to know when I am on mission, I am experiencing the greatest satisfaction. And he remains on mission and he lives on mission. He is a man who doesn't take a break from his mission. He came to do the will of him who sent him. The will of him who sent him Throughout John's gospel, we, we, we come to understand that it is his Father. It's his Heavenly Father who has sent him. It's a glimpse into the covenant of redemption. That in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son, they had planned the redemption of God's elect. 
And the Son would take on the mission of being the member of the Trinity who would take on flesh and be the substitute, the sacrifice, the Savior. And he says, this is my mission to do the will of him who sent me. On the pages of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John, when you look at Jesus, you see the will of the Father in flesh and blood walking this very earth. When he acts, he is demonstrating the will of his Father. When he speaks, he's telling the will of his Father. But not only is he showing the Father, he also shows us who we were created to be before the fall. Here, as he is seeking constantly to do the will of him who sent me, he is perfect humanity, finding ultimate satisfaction in doing God's will. He is who what you and I were created to be as the image of God, those who would walk with God in fellowship with him, in closeness with him, finding our delight and our heart's desire fulfilled in God. But having been separated from the source of life because of our sin and because of the fall, God in his kindness to his people would often try to remind them of their longings can only be fulfilled ultimately in their God. And so as God led the people out of Egypt, as Israel was led out by Moses, he led them in such a way that they experienced hunger and then God fed them with manna. And Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 8.3, this was so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God was gracious to his people to point them saying, you're hungering for bread, but what you really need is me and my word. And in Jesus, we find the one who though he experiences real hunger like you and I, ultimately knows what his soul needs and he lives and walks in this world in that way. He finds joy and satisfaction in the will of his heavenly father and walking in obedience and demonstrating it. If you're a Christian, you've surrendered your life to Christ and you are pursuing him as a disciple of his. If you've been made new, you've experienced the new birth. Your obedience is not what brings you into the kingdom of God. That is a sovereign work of God. Your obedience is not what has paid for your sins. That is what Christ has done for you at the cross. But now as God's adopted children, as heirs with Christ, you begin to find what you were created for. And that when you begin to walk according to God's word, as it's shown to us in the scriptures, and live according to his will as it is revealed in the scriptures. The law that formerly condemned you becomes your delight. And there is you're saying, I was created to know God and to walk in his ways. And obedience 
goes from drudgery to joy. And you too begin to grow in greater satisfaction in doing the will of God and being obedient to what He has commanded and shown to you in His Word. That's part of the reason why Satan, your enemy, the tempter, seeks to tempt you. Part of that, he's after your joy. He wants to keep you from knowing the blessedness of walking in God's ways. He wants to harm your soul and keep you malnourished and looking to the things of this world for sustenance. When man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This was part of his mission to always be doing, representing, revealing the will of him who sent him. But that mission, that earthly mission, did have a goal. And he says in verse 34, it was, it was my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Accomplish his work. The Father has given him a finish line. He is giving him a goal to accomplish. And the goal is to save sinners. And Christ will do so by his own substitutionary death on the cross. And as he approaches the cross, in John 17, in his great high priestly prayer, what does Jesus tell his father? He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus has been gathering in sinners into the kingdom of God and then especially he's been bringing in disciples and training the apostles who the next day will witness his death and resurrection and then be sent as his representatives across the globe. They'll carry on his mission because they'll see the completion of redemption. In John 19.30, Jesus says, it is finished. He accomplished the work and the mission given to him. And here in John 4, he's telling his disciples, this, this woman from Samaria, she was a sinner. I offered her eternal life. She has believed in me. I've made her believer. This is my food. The salvation of sinners is what satisfies my soul. For the disciples to understand and for you and I to understand our role in the mission of God, Jesus wants us to understand the heart of God that propels the mission of God in the world. And he gives us a window into the heart of God. He says, look at your Father, your Heavenly Father. He is one who sends His one and only beloved Son on mission. For God so loved the world, sinful humanity, that he gave his only son. For God to give his son, he had to send his son, and he sent them. Jesus says, see my heart. I find satisfaction in being sent. I find satisfaction in being given. For Jesus, the cross is both dreadful and delightful. It's a beauty and the wonder of the gospel that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endures the cross, despising the shame. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand 
that he considers the pain he will endure on their behalf and for the salvation of sinners more than worth it. The God-man, Jesus Christ, finds satisfaction for his soul by making satisfaction for sin. That is the satisfaction of the Savior on mission. But he has invited his disciples to join him. They want, he wants them to know something of the satisfaction in himself. And so in verses 35 through 38, he lays out this is a shared mission and it's an urgent mission. The disciples are to join him immediately on this mission. But in order to do so, they need to see the world the way that he sees the world. They need to see the mission before them the way that he sees the mission before them. And so in verses 35 to 38, he, he, he begins to, to shape the way that they are to view what is before them and the task and the calling that he has placed on them. He begins with the proverb. The proverb there in verse 35 Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. And then he goes on to say later, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. The proverb simply is saying that normally, yes, there is is a cycle of, of sowing and reaping and harvest time. And this is how crops work. And Apparently, there would have been between the first set of crops and different crops that were sown and the last set, and by the time those first ones were harvested again, it was potentially a period of four months. That's the best we can do with figuring out what what this proverb would. But the simple message is that normally, there's a waiting period. And Jesus says, not anymore. There's not a waiting period. The spiritual harvest has begun. There is an urgency about the mission. Recognize the time in which it is. I am here. I am years away from the cross. And I will return. This is a new age that has been inaugurated. It's a fulfillment what the prophet Amos has said. In Amos 9 verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. It's the image of those who would prepare for the sowing is then overtaking the reaper and then those who have reaped are overtaking the seed. It's happening at the same time. Christian missionary work is a process of sowing and reaping, but Jesus wants his disciples to understand that as you're sowing, be expectant that it's time for reaping too. There is an urgency about the opportunity and the timing that is there. And he begins to help them understand more about this urgency. That's the first thing. He wants them to understand the time that they're in. But it's also, he wants to see, you got to get a hold of how I see a lost and dying world. He tells them, lift up your eyes, for the fields are white for harvest. Now, we can't figure out what crop would have be white for harvest. There wouldn't have been a crop in that climate in that time of, of, of year that would have been the, the signal that it's ready to be harvested would have been a white fruit or a white flower. Most likely, he's literally telling them, 
Look up and look who's coming towards you. It's those who heard the witness of the woman at the well. She's going back to her town. And she said, I met a man who told me everything about me. Could this be the Christ? And people started believing and they start going out to the well where she was to find him. And so literally he's saying, the spiritual harvest is coming towards you guys right now. Look up. See it. Now these are Samaritans. If the disciples would have said, hey, we need to go start a work in Samaria, that had been like, whew, Samaria? Those folks? Seriously? They were, they were those who were, who were not purely Jewish, ethnically or religiously. They're, they have been intermingled with the nations around them. They had not stayed to the true old covenant religion. And the disciples would have said, okay, long-term strategic planning. We've got to work this out. What's the Samaritan plan? And Jesus says, the plan is that they're coming right now. They're ready. And oftentimes we look at our neighbors. We may look at family members, coworkers, and we see the hurdles. We see the obstacles. We see the distance from Christ. And we belittle the power of a simple gospel message. That Jesus is ready to save sinners. And he doesn't necessarily need our timeline. He sees our world ready to be saved. We tend to look at the darkness and say, wow, so hard, so far from God. And he says, these are the perfect candidates. Yeah, they're so far from me. They're thirsty for living water and they can only get it from me. So offer it to them as he has done with this woman. Then he presses on them, you have to see the time. You have to see those as ready. Then you also have to see the eternal perspective. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. He's he says, as I go out in the world on mission, I'm constantly thinking about eternity. Yes, I need food. Yes, I need physical water. But my gaze is fixed on eternity and what is of eternal importance. And he wants his disciples to then embrace the mission in the same way. To see the Samaritans and to see those who they will come in contact with as those with eternal souls, with eternal consequences, who one day will face their maker and face a judgment. That's how Jesus saw the, every person he encountered. And grabbing hold of that eternal perspective is crucial to living in, being on mission with Jesus. It would seem to be a great burden but Jesus points out to them, just go. Be ready. Because the fourth thing he wants to show them here is that if you're going to see mission the way that I see it, you need to see a world in which God is at work. That God has not left to its own devices. What does he tell them? He says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. And you enter into their labor. 
New Testament commentators here, they, they, they go around and around on who the others are. And that's not really Jesus' point. Jesus' point to his disciples is saying, don't wait, look now, because God has already been at work. So as you're sowing, expect to reap. God is at work even when you can't recognize it. See a world differently. Understand that God has sent the prophets of the Old Testament. He prepared the way for John, for Jesus coming with John the Baptist. Jesus has now arrived. And that's just a little glimpse into what he has done preparing for a spiritual harvest. And so as you go into the fields, expect that God has already been there and you are not bringing him there. And that you have some part to play in a great spiritual harvest. Now some of you, it should be stirred in your hearts to pray and say, God, will you and are you sending me to a different field? And that should be a very sincere surrendering to the Lord and saying, you are my king and wherever you would deploy me on mission, I will go. Whatever conveniences, whatever opportunities that may be lost, may be given up, it's worth it for the mission. Some of you should be praying about God, are you sending me to a different field? But most of us, the point of this passage is to recognize the field that you're in right now. To recognize the field that is, is in your home. Parents, it's time to embrace being great commissioned parents and saying that my first field of harvest is the children that God's entrusted to me. And that if I place my hope in what my children will do as far as degrees, success, their future marriages, giving me grandkids, they will never bring me satisfaction. They will never bring me delight. But if God, if God in his great mercy to me would, by his spirit, allow me to be part of witnessing the gospel to the little ones he's placed in my care, oh, there's no greater satisfaction that, is a, that can be as a parent. There's no greater satisfaction as a, as a student. The perfect GPA will leave you wanting more, but if you understand that God has placed me in a field with these other students on this Zoom call that do not know Christ, and here I am, one of 40, one of 100, one of 20, someone who has met the Savior, here's my field, my roommates that have come from different parts of Michigan, different parts of, of the world, those I interact with on my hall. Here's my field. Now is the time. They're ready to hear the gospel. Eternity is at stake. And I trust that God is at work even when we can't recognize it. It's a shared and urgent mission. But lastly, we see a worldwide mission. A worldwide mission. It goes from Jesus talking about a spiritual harvest and his mission to then we get a little picture of it in verses 39 through 42. 
The woman's witness is effective. And the Samaritans come to Christ. These are those that the prophet Jeremiah said, the prophets of Samaria have prophesied about Baal and they've led my people astray. These are the people that were unlikely to experience any sort of revival in turning to Christ. But on the witness of an unlikely missionary in this woman, they are now coming out to Christ. And as John said in his prologue, to all who did receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And they come out to him and they spend a couple days with him. And what do the Samaritans say of Christ? He is the savior of the world. It's echoing what John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a progression in John chapter 4 where Jesus, when he first sees the woman at the well, he's, he's a Jewish man, she's a Samaritan woman. And then they get to talking and he points out some really serious sin in her life. And she says, you must be a prophet. He goes from a Jew to being recognized as a prophet. And as the conversation goes further, she says, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am the Messiah. And he goes from being the Messiah, the Savior promised to the Jews, but here it's even his Messiahship, his mission is giving greater clarity on the words of these unlikely converts coming from Samaria, the Savior of the world. The gospel will go forth and it goes forth in power that those who carry the mission and the gospel message, they carry a powerful message. That's why you can look at the world as ready for harvest. That's why you can look at the, every sinner you encounter with is ready for harvest. Because of the power of the gospel. And you can be unashamed of that gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek. Romans 1, 16. And just think about it. We see the power of the gospel in this, this spiritual harvest here in Samaria. But we do see the greatness of God's grace displayed in the gospel. Because the first missionary to this little village was the woman that encountered Jesus at the well. And it's a, a Christ-centered message she brings back, but her testimony is simple and it revolves around, it's repeated twice there by John in John chapter 4. He told me everything that I ever did. He told me everything that I ever did. What an interesting way to begin testifying about Jesus and the eternal life that's offered. It points us to the grace of God shown in the gospel. She's an unlikely missionary. She wasn't a pious woman. She wasn't devout. No, Jesus confronted her and said, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. Because you've had five husbands. Five of them. And the man that you're living with right now, he's not your husband. This was a woman who, the reason why she's at the well at the middle of the day is that the other women in the village don't want to be seen around her. Scandal has followed her. She has an ill reputation. It wasn't easy for a woman in her day to, to seek out a divorce. There has been some serious sin and trauma in this woman's life. 
She has sinned and she has been sinned against. And what did she come back to her town and say? You think you know me. I thought I know me, knew me. He told me everything that I ever did. I met the one who really knows me. And yet he still offered me eternal life. It's all of grace. She didn't deserve it. No one knows you like Jesus does. Each of us has a fear of really being known. He knows you better than you know yourself. You think you might have a lot to be ashamed of, but Jesus knows how bad you really are. And yet, you are his mission. Knowing all your sin, knowing all the ways your sin has destroyed your life and has harmed others, he pursues you. She did not deserve what Jesus offered. We do not deserve what he offers. We do not deserve the Father sending and giving, but the Father did. Jesus does not pursue the worthy, but he finds satisfaction in being sent for and giving his life for the wicked. He delights in taking those who've been trashed by sin and making them trophies of his grace and missionaries of his gospel. The great grace of God, as foretold by Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. If it's a gospel all of grace, then God gets all the glory. He is exalted in the saving of sinners like the Samaritans and the woman at the well, and you and I. And that is the glorious news that we are sent on mission into the fields where we are right now. Amen. And let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we cannot wait till we are better. That will never come. You have not called the righteous. You've called sinners. And so we come and we lay our burdens down. We come bruised and broken by the fall. And we say, we are in need of living water. Help us to then be those who point others to the source of life and living water. And may it flow from us. May we leave behind the empty cisterns that we have sought to fill and find satisfaction. When we, we leave behind the things that we have found our delight in. And may we pursue the living water that is offered. May we pursue the bread of life. And may we carry it to a lost and hurting world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.